0: Lord Jesus, we ask that you would breathe into us as we take a deep breath right now. We just let it all the way out. Lord, it's your breath in our lungs, so we just take another deep breath all the way in and all the way out. And Jesus, we surrender to you this evening. We surrender our day, everything that's happened today, everything that's happened this Lenten season already, we just surrender it to you. We surrender all of our hopes to you, our desires to you, our sufferings to you, our sorrows to you, any expectations we have. Lord, we just surrender that to you. And I pray, Lord, tonight that you would fill us with hope, that you would fill us with your healing presence, that your precious blood would come upon each one of us right now, Lord, that you would protect us, that you would heal us, that you would cleanse us, bring us home to you, Lord. Bring us home, reconcile us to you. Lord, we offer to you once again the the thing that we've been clutching to our heart. We offer to you once again the person that we journeyed on forgiveness with last night. We just surrendered our hearts to you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for you rain down grace upon us like the rain that's falling outside, and you love us. And Mother Mary, once again, we come to you as your children. You who are the woman who's so courageous and so beautiful, Mother, you are with us every step of the way. We ask that during this time for your intercession, your protection, your guidance, and your blessing, Mama. As we pray together, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death amen our lady queen of peace pray for us in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen can we just give erin a hand for her beautiful music that she's led us through Thank you so much, Erin. It's been so beautiful. Well, hello again. Hi. How are you? So who's, who is tonight the first night you've ever been here? Like, okay, so we got a few. You totally missed out. Just kidding. You're most welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and even you brave the rain, um, and I'm delighted that you're here. So I've been telling you nun stories. Can I tell you one more nun story before we begin? So... Uh, <laughs> A couple summers ago, I was at a teen conference, and sometimes teen conferences, I know this is shocking to imagine, but sometimes teens do not want to go to teen conferences. I know that's surprising, but sometimes they're made to go either by their confirmation class or their parents, and sometimes they're not exactly too excited to be at a conference on a Saturday when they had to get up at six o'clock in the morning. Okay, you can imagine, okay? So I was a couple summers ago, I was at a teen conference. And this mom came up to me after my talk, and she was laughing so hard. And she's like, Sister, I have to tell you, I drug my daughter out of bed this morning. She's 16 years old. She's a junior in high school. I drug her out of bed this morning. She did not want to go. And I told her, Honey, just go. Listen to Sister Miriam. You're going to be fine. Just go, okay? So the girl went. She came to my talk in the morning, and so the mom went up to her. She's like, So what would you think? And the 16-year-old girl was like, Yeah, she was okay. She's almost normal, you know? Laughter. So let me just say, almost normal from a 16-year-old girl is high praise, okay? Can I just tell you that right now? So I've got some beautiful things for you tonight. um, But first and foremost, you probably figured out I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan, so we're going to talk about C.S. Lewis tonight. But the first thing I want to talk about is he has a beautiful sermon. Maybe you've heard of it called The Weight of Glory. And in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, he has a lot of beautiful quotes in that sermon. But one of them is this. He says, now check this out. He says, aside from the blessed sacrament itself, Okay, so aside from Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, aside from the blessed sacrament itself, he says, your neighbor, so the person right now, sitting to your right and to your left, okay, he said, is the holiest thing presented to your senses, okay? Now, if you live with them and you saw them before coffee this morning, you were like, not this morning, sister, that was not happening, okay? So can you do me a huge favor, and every introvert is about to hate my guts right now, okay? But can you just look at the person to your right and to your left, okay, okay? They are the holiest thing presented to your senses, right? Stop laughing. Okay. <laughs> now look at me. But then, but then he says this. Then he, he actually ups the ante. And you want to know, you know from whence we get our beautiful teaching on the sanctity of life. It's written in the heart of every person. He says, and if your neighbor is a Christian, it's almost the same thing. For Christ himself dwells within them. If your neighbor is a Christian, it is almost the same thing because Christ himself dwells within them, okay? So can you once again look at the person to your right and to your left and say to them, Christ dwells in you, right? Okay. And can you look at two other people, two other people and say, I am glad you're here tonight, right? Okay. All right. So there we go. So you can think about that, you know. But, you know, we, we talked about how, we talked about, I think, the first night of how so often that the, we see the manifestation of war outside, right? We see the manifestation of just different things that are happening in the nation and the world. And we say to those people, like, why don't you guys do something about that? Do something about that. And for a long time, I thought in my life, if, like, you guys behaved better, I would be different. Like, it's your problem, you know, like, get your act together. It doesn't work like that. The conversion always starts here, okay? So can I just give you just um, a couple things from last night that we talked about? I wanna give you some practicals about forgiveness that we talked about last night that you can choose another way. You do not have to be Enigo Montoya and spend your whole life seeking revenge on the person. That you can choose at any time another way. And that part of that is allowing the emotion to come to the surface. Part of that is allowing our hearts to be unfolded. And it's a process and that's okay? It's okay. Like we said, Jesus is never, you know, C.S. Lewis, Aslan tells Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia, he says, things never happen the same way twice. Right? Things never happen the same way twice. And in our life, it is the same thing. So maybe last night, somebody came to your mind. I heard a lot of stories today about who came to your mind. And somebody maybe came to your mind that you've been struggling with for a long time. And you might say to yourself, gosh, I've already, I thought I already forgave. I, thought, I already thought I got over that. But remember when we talked about the priest who visited the man in the cemetery, you know, and he says, how do you how do you get over the love of your life? How do you get over these things? It's not about a matter of us getting over it. And I sometimes think we do that to ourselves and to other people because we're uncomfortable with the suffering. But it's Jesus Christ coming to visit every facet of your heart. Okay, so we can always choose another way. Forgiveness is a process. It's an ongoing journey. Forgiveness happens step by step as we face each wound. And this is really, really important because sometimes what we do is we try to forgive somebody and just forgive them kind of en masse. And then we wonder why we quote unquote can't forgive them. The true path of forgiveness is forgiving them wound by wound, right? That's why sometimes it takes some time. So like if somebody came to your mind last night that you've been trying to forgive for years, you might find the next step for you is taking the same person and just starting just one by one. You know, And how do they hurt you? What, what happened there? And you'd be amazed at how the wound is cleansed in our hearts. I had a very wise woman tell me one time at the very beginning of my healing journey, like 14 years ago, she said, you know, Sister Miriam, the wounds that have been inflicted upon you and the wounds that you've inflicted upon yourself are like open wounds. And she's like, and they're infected. And it's true. They're infected. And so if you can imagine yourself covered in wounds that are infected and what happens with wounds that are infected You get very sick pus starts to form in them i mean they're very they're toxic and if anybody gets anywhere near them they're so painful are they not and she's like you know when wounds heal sometimes when wounds heal they leave a scar right so when you see jesus christ there's a reason why jesus christ comes not with scars but he comes with open wounds but his wounds in the resurrection are not signs of torture and death they're signs of resurrection and our founder would always tell us, the founder of my religious community would always say, Jesus Christ rose with his wounds wide open so you could go inside of them and find healing. Right? So at any time, you and I can go inside the wounds of Christ and find healing. And she said, you know, scars, when they heal, sometimes you'll have scars, and sometimes you will always have in life a tender place of your heart. And she's like, and that's okay, because scars will not kill you. Open, infected wounds just might. So in our journey my dear friends it's really not a matter of kind of like the question that John Paul II asks in the theology of the body it's not a matter of will i give the gift of myself in love that's not really not the question because to be human means to give the gift of ourselves is to be a self-gift the question is how will i give the gift of myself in love so really the question if we really want to transform this lenten season and not just this lent but the, for the rest of our lives the question is not will i deal with my stuff or will i face my my pain will i face my sorrow that's really not ultimately the question. The question is, how will I respond? And I have a wonderful spiritual director who's just an absolutely amazing human being. And he's the exorcist for his diocese, one of the exorcists for his diocese. And I've learned so much from him just about the journey of the soul and how the hierarchy of, of love and how Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It's so good. And he said, you know, sister, sometimes in our lives we have wounds that have happened to us, and the natural question for the human person is, Why? Why? Isn't that the age-old issue with God, generation after generation after generation after generation? If God is so good, then why did these things happen? And we know it all very personally. We know that. And that's the question that continues to just tug upon us, which Satan loves to exploit in our hearts. So the question many times to the God is, why did you let this happen? If you had been here, like, you know, like uh, Mary and Martha, hey, Lord, if you had been here, none of this would have happened. And how many times in our life have we cried out to the Lord and said, if you had been here, I wouldn't have died. My brother wouldn't have died. This wouldn't have happened. Where are you? How can God be so good? And Jesus is just so kind in his strength of where he just comes into our life and he takes on everything upon himself and to set us free. Because Christ is present at every single moment. And everything that has ever happened to you and to me fits into the palm of his hand. And he will use it for good. So ultimately, the question, my dear friends, is what my spiritual director is always reminding me of, is the question is not, why did this happen to me? He said, the spiritually mature person asks not, why did this happen to me, but how will I respond now? How will I respond now? And you and I can spend the rest of our lives, and I say this in in deep reverence to your story and to mine as well, you and I can spend the rest of our lives blaming everybody else for our problems. That's an option. Not a very happy one, but you're most welcome to do that, right? Or, or, little by little, to pray for the willingness to be willing to be transformed through the suffering, through the death, and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I think that's a much better option, right? So really, the choice is ours, and the Lord gives us that freedom to to choose that path. Like we talked about last night, sometimes the person that we need to forgive most, so to speak, is ourselves, so many times what happens is we've done things in our life that are so shameful to us and we've been a confession for them or maybe they're unconfessed sin in our life unconfessed sin is a killer of all kinds of joy in our life, I just want to say that to you so if there's parts of your story that you have never confessed, I would highly recommend this Lent really just going to make it a good confession because the Lord comes to speak to these deep places and like we said we have ourselves by the collar of our shirt and what's happening underneath that is just like the same thing that's happening when I can't forgive somebody else underneath that area of, of of, um, self-defense and self-protection is a deep well of pain it's a deep well of pain and I, I think I told this story at SLS when I was giving the talk at SLS but I um, some time ago I have a really wonderful friend who just loves me very much you talk about somebody who is home for you this is my dear friend is very home to me And all of us, now, if you've heard my story, and, you know, you have parts of your story, too, they're just very tender and very guarded. And all of us have places at our hearts, like, in the inner sanctum of our hearts that are very, very fiercely guarded. And we are so afraid to speak of these things to other people. And I've been on a healing journey for a long time, but I still have parts of my hearts where I'm like, gosh, you know, if I really say this to people that I love, will they still love me. Like, all of us have that fear, you know. And so I was, I took a huge risk. Because I know my friend, and I know my friend loves me very much. I took a huge risk one night and just telling my friend kind of this area of my life that I was, it, an area of deep poverty, that I was just so struggling in it, I hadn't really spoken up to anybody. And so I just took the risk of, to tell my friend, and my friend is so wonderful, and they know me so well, you know. And so they listened to my story, and not only did they receive what I said, they affirmed what I said, and then they took it one step further <laughs> and actually talked about something much deeper that I didn't want to admit to. And they said it in love, they said it in truth, but my first def- my first reaction was one of self-defense. So I was like, I know that, thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> like, I just said that, you know, like, thanks a lot, you know. And it was just, uh, you know, and I, could, I started to cry and I was like, I don't you think I know that about myself? Like, I know that about myself, it's an area of deep poverty, I cannot fix myself, which is just so eloquently wonderful that I can't fix myself, you know. All I can do is sit at the foot of the cross and ask the Lord to heal me. I said, don't you think I know that? And my friend is so good, not, not deterred at all by my self-defense, not deterred by my just kind of like outburst. And my friend looked at me and they said, Sister Miriam, do you not come and sit with me in these places of my heart, the places where I am poor, the places that I can't fix? Do you not in your kindness love me and come and sit next to me in these places and bring me to the Lord? And I said, of course I do. I love you. <laughs> like there's nothing you could ever tell me that would ever cause me to turn away from you. And then my friend said this, and it forever changed my heart. My friend said this, then will you not let me do the same for you? Will you not let me do the same for you? Will you let me sit with you here in this place that you find is so shameful? I'm not ashamed. I'm not afraid of this part of your heart. And I love you. Can I just bring you to the Lord here? Is that okay? And that's what we call bringing all the parts of us into communion, because that's what Jesus is about. That's what healing is about. Healing is not some weird fringe movement on the church. (laughs) It's about healing. It's about making, that's holiness. It's making us whole. So you and I are not living disintegrated lives. This side of the fall, we are disintegrated. We have this over here and this over here and this over here. And Jesus Christ is coming to make us whole. He's coming to reconcile us, okay? So if we could kind of revisit the very first night we talked about, I gave you an excerpt from Pope Francis's letter for Lent, which I would highly recommend that you read. And it's from the Second, uh, second Corinthians chapter 5, where St. Paul is talking about, he's urging the people to be reconciled to God. And this is, once again, I just want to highlight this to you because this is Pope Francis. He says, it is good to contemplate more deeply the paschal mystery through which God's mercy has been bestowed upon us. Indeed, the experience of mercy is only possible in a face-to-face, this is so incredibly important and beautiful, only in a face-to-face relationship with the crucified and risen Lord who loved me and gave himself for me in a heartfelt dialogue between friends. And what does Jesus say to his disciples in the Gospel of John? He says, I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. Do you know what the classic definition of friendship is? The philosophical definition of friendship is shared goodwill, Shared goodwill, and you know, uh, um, Aristotle talks about different kinds of friendship, right? When we talk about friends like this, these are friends. Friends share hearts. Friends, quote-unquote, waste time together. Friends know one another by even the gaze that you look upon them with. They know. Friends know. He's not here to lord it over us. It's just so beautiful how Jesus comes into the world naked and vulnerable, and he leaves the world naked and vulnerable. And in that, he's teaching us what it means to be human. Jesus Christ has no self-defense mechanisms. No self-protection, no facade. What you see is what you get. And people found it unnervingly beautiful. And I really believe that's why the little ones who had eyes to see and ears to hear would flock to him. Would flock to him. And they would find comfort and refuge there. And that's how he encounters you and I. And his desire like we said is not to not to, you know, stay here at the surface level, at the level of the symptoms. Christ wants to come to the root of your tree, to the core of who you are, your heart, as we've talked about, and encounter you face-to-face. But sometimes in our journey, I think we'd all have to admit we have different reactions uh, to that kind of face-to-face encounter. And if you are a Narnia fan, you're going to love this. Okay. So um, this is actually a painting a woman did. It's actually very beautiful. And this is Aslan and Lucy. And you see them by a stream here. But I've been recently coming across another book. And if you've read the series, so The Chronicles of Narnia is a children's story. And it's a series of seven books that C.S. Lewis wrote for his niece. And it took him 10 years to write the series. And in the very beginning of the introduction to The Magician's Nephew, he writes in the foreword to the book to his niece, one day, he says, one day you'll be old enough for fairy tales again, right? So it's a story of, this, you know, of Lucy and, and Susan and, the, and Edward and, the, and all the, br- the, the kids that go to Narnia. But part of that story contains an icky little cousin named Eustace. Okay? And in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, if you've read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you know that Eustace has a very powerful conversion with Aslan. So much so that the next book, The Silver Chair, is Eustace in his own adventure. With his friend named Jill. Okay, Jill has never been to Narnia. She doesn't know who Aslan is. And if you don't know who Aslan is, Aslan is the Christ figure in the story. And I remember when I first read this series, my mom, my mom used to read to me for hours and hours and hours. When I was a little girl. But she never read to me this series. And many, many years ago, Amazon had them all on sale for 99 cents. I'm like, who could be to sale like that, you know? So I bought the entire series, and I started with A Magician's Nephew, and I read, that was my bedtime reading. I read the entire series from, you know, from the beginning to the end, before I went to bed at night. And I would find myself at times reading, and especially when Aslan would encounter the children, I would find myself absolutely weeping. And it wasn't just like a cry from here. It was like a cry from here. And I'm like, man, something's not right. <laughs> so I like put the book down. I'm like, I don't know what's happening right now. Like, what's happening to me? And I have no idea, you know? Until I heard a lecture by Dr. Peter Kreeft one time, who was speaking about C.S. Lewis. Who loved, he loves to be about C.S. Lewis. And Dr. Peter Kreeft said this, and this is his opinion, but he said he believes that in all of literature, which is a sweeping statement, he believes that in all of literature, the character of Aslan is probably most like Jesus Christ. right? Because Aslan, when he confronts the children, he always speaks the truth to them and he encounters them face to face, he elicits the truth from them, he heals their sin, and he confirms them and sends them out on an adventure. Okay, Which is what is happening with Jill. And So I'm just going to use this as Jill, because this is actually the very setting of the silver chair. What's happened here is that Jill is a sidekick, a friend, a school friend of Eustace, and she's a girl who's picked on at school, and she's bullied at school, and she hates her life, and she wants to have an adventure. So Eustace pulls her into Narnia, but she doesn't know anything about Aslan or anything like that. Once they get to Narnia, she does something that causes Eustace to have to go away, and it's her fault, and she is not ready to admit that what she's done is very wrong, and that it's her fault, and she's making excuses for herself, and when she's walking through the forest all by herself now, she begins to not only become very, very thirsty, but she begins to hear the trickling sound of a nearby stream, okay? So can I read to you, right, what happens in her adventure, Okay. This is Jill. This is what happens there. She says, "'The sound of water grew clearer every moment, "'and sooner than she had expected, "'she came to an open glade and saw a stream, "'bright as glass, running across the turf, "'a stone's throw away from her. "'But although the sight of the water "'made her feel ten times thirstier than before, "'she did not rush forward and drink, "'because she stood there as still "'as if she'd been turned to stone, "'her mouth wide open. "'And she had a very good reason, "'because just on this side of the stream lay a lion.'" A lion with its paws out and his head raised nice and high. Jill thought, If I run away, he'll be after me in a moment. But if I go on forward, I'll run right into his mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have run away if she tried because she could not take her eyes off the lion. A voice said to her, If you're thirsty, you may drink. Then it said again, If you're thirsty, come and drink. Then finally, the lion said to her, Are you not thirsty? And she said, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. This is so great. And Jill replied, well, may I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? (laughs) The lion answered this by only a low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come and drink, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now, you're thirsty too now. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had actually come a step nearer to the lion. Do you eat, little girls? She said. I have swallowed up boys and girls, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. Well then, Jet, said Jill, I dare not come and drink. So the lion replied, Then you will die of thirst. Jill replied, Oh dear. Coming another step closer. <laughs> well, I suppose that I must go and look for another stream then. To which the lion replied, there is no other stream. There is no other stream. In our life, do we not spend so much of our lives looking for another stream? Some place where we can ideally satisfy our thirst, right? So we think what we, can, we can get what we want. Or maybe what happens is, is we have to go through the heart of Christ. And we're like, can you just go away for, can you like go away for a little bit? It's so great. This is what we all do. Can you just go away for a little bit, you know? Do you promise not to do anything if I do come near to you? It's just so wonderful. You can see her immense self-protection. And you see the Lord there saying to her, there is no other stream. There is no other stream for us, my dear friends. (laughs) To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go in our life? And we are just deeply, deeply thirsty for the living water in our journey, and our soul. And you know this so well because it's etched in your deepest dreams and your deepest sin. We're so thirsty. We're longing for an encounter. So when the Lord comes to us face to face, does he not surprise us at times? And many times in life when we end up in certain places in our lives, do we not say, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> I didn't sign up for this. A couple summers ago, I was, I was working on a talk for teenagers and I came across this tweet that was actually going viral as I, it was in my timeline. And it was going viral as I found it, I, I'll read it to you. I know it's kind of the small print. But you see there a man who is cradling a woman, and this is what this young woman wrote. She said, my parents have been married for 34 years. My mom is in the final stages of young onset dementia. She was diagnosed five years ago at the age of 53. My dad cares for her full time. She doesn't always remember his name. But she knows she is safe with him. And if that's not true love, I don't know it is. To this day, this tweet has over 100,000 retweets. It's got a half a million likes on it. And it's got thousands of comments in the comment box. And I started reading people's comments. Because a month after she posted this, her mom passed away. And she passed away just like that. Surrounded by love. Of a man who made a vow to her. Who made a covenant with her 34 years ago. And was faithful to the end and it's very interesting in the comment box you know you can see you can see people's you know kind of their profiles and you can see they have all these different ideas of what marriage is and what women are and what men are every single one of them resounded and resonated with this picture because in our hearts we know this is true in our hearts this is how we long to be loved and can I just point out to you just the body language of just this paint or this, of the picture and you see the father there sitting just and he's a large man isn't he And he's cradling his wife in his arms. And you can tell that she's sick. She looks like a little girl almost. And she's resting in his heart. And for for you to put your head on somebody's heart and to be nestled there takes a lot, a lot of safety and a lot of courage. It's a place where you can tell that she's home. And I love that the dad is looking right into the camera of his daughter's, you know, phone as she takes the picture and you can just see the way his body is, just the way that men's and women's bodies are different. Like the way the bodies of a man is just so much larger. It's, it's you know, more angular, but it's meant to protect. And you see him gathering his wife and her brokenness and her fragility. And he's, he's, he's refuging her. He's harboring her. And I can guarantee you 34 years ago on their wedding day, whether they got married in a church or they got married someplace else, I guarantee you neither one of them knew this was coming. And probably both of them said, I didn't sign up for this at some point. I didn't sign up for this, and yet what happened, and all the things in life they didn't sign up for, they're made faithful, and that is a very beautiful thing, and you see just the masculine genius here of a man, the the strength of a man is to be able to lay down his life so others can live, that is the masculine genius, and the way the man's body, his mind is ordered, where he thinks linearly, he sees in the long run, His, his emotions are less varied than women, women, you know this very well, you know. We, as women, our bodies are soft, our bodies are round, we bring people into us. We usually smell better than men, but that's a different story. Okay, but like, you know. And you see this beauty, this reciprocity. And you see this man who no longer received anything from his wife, that she forgot his name. And she got so sick that she didn't know who he was. And he was faithful. He was faithful. Can I just call out to the men, gentlemen? dads, first of all, dads, your children need to hear from you. Your daughters and your sons need your blessing. A man gives strength, tender affirmation to his children. He's the one who affirms them. He's the one who guides them. He's the one who strengthens them, who set them on their way to make them strong in the world. And your sons need to hear from you. Your sons need to hear how strong they are, how they can do it, how you believe in them, how they don't have to perform for your love. And your daughters need to hear the same thing. They need to hear that they're beautiful and that they're cared for. And they learn how to love men. They know how men love them by the way you love them. And I so wish my dad, I love my, I told you my dad died very suddenly many years ago. And my dad was a wonderful, wonderful father. Showed up every day for work, wonderful man. But he didn't have the ability to, to articulate those words. And I so wish he would have. And this gentleman, young men, this is the nature that you're growing into. As, as sons, as brothers, as bridegrooms, as fathers. To give the gift of yourself. So when the Lord strengthens you, you bless, you bless the world. Your masculinity, we need the gift of men. We need your strength. We need your ability to lay down your life. We need your ability to protect, to guard, to guard the dignity of young people, the vulnerable, the women, to stand up for what is true, to fight for what is right. We need you, men. We need you. And Allowing the Lord to come and heal your heart, to heal your masculine heart so that you can give the gift of yourself is absolutely priceless. And as much as I do a lot of women's ministry, I do a lot of ministry to priests and seminarians and things like. I just hear a lot of stories, and I can tell you that we need the gift. We need the gift of masculinity more than anything in the world today. And when that happens, when men and women are rebuilt together, it's not one or the other, but we're rebuilt together. So I just want to call out to you, gentlemen. Your strength is beautiful, and when you allow the Lord to transform it, it is used for good and it gives life. And we need that. We need that. And that's what you see happening here, and that's why that photo resounds that every single one of us wants to be loved like that, where we can be so vulnerable and so broken and so little and still find a place to call home. Because that's how God loves us. That's how he loves us. And that's why it echoes so deeply in us, right? John Paul II in his first encyclical, The Redeemer of Man, I quoted a bit for you on Monday night about how we need love. This is a wonderful quote from the same document. He says, The man who wishes, or the woman, the person, who wishes to understand himself thoroughly and not just in accordance with immediate, partial, or often superficial, and even illusory standards and measures of his being, he must, this is so beautiful, he must with his unrest, his uncertainty, and even his weakness and his sinfulness, even his life and his death draw near to Christ, he must so to speak enter into Jesus with all his own self so there's not one part of our hearts my dear friends there's not one part of our heart that's left outside of this communion that the Lord brings everything into communion because often you know and Pope Francis says that he said that a couple years ago when he was talking about the sacrament of confession he was talking about the year of mercy he was like do we not get tired we sometimes get tired I think all of us get tired of going to confession and confessing the same thing you know we get like we get tired of it we get tired of like, oh, here I am again, or here I struggle with this again, or here I do this again. He said, the Lord never tires of forgiving you, ever, ever. There is no other stream. There is no other way in Under Armour. I love sports. I, it's one of my love languages, but um, <laughs> true story. I, I grew up and I played, I don't know if you knew this, but I played Division I volleyball in college, okay? So I wanted to work for ESPN. Aaron Andrews stole my job, so I'm a nun. That's what really happened, okay? But... <laughs> But I do have to say, when I was watching the Super Bowl and I was watching on the 50-yard line, I was like, oh, dang, girl. That'd be, like, so awesome, you know? But, you know, we, like, we love the stories like that, and we love the restoration and th- things like that. And Under Armour, which is the counterpart to Nike, Under Armour, just so great. Why, okay, can we just talk about this for just a second? Okay, as an aside, going me make a sports analogy for just a second. I've spared most of them for you these three nights, but I can no longer hold back. Okay, so... Why do, why do sports commercials, why do athletic commercials, okay, why do we love sports? One of the reasons why we love sports is because it's a form of excellence that we can all recognize. This is why every four years, planet Earth stops for two weeks, okay, and we watch people with no body fat win stuff. We call it the Olympics, all right? That's what happens. We love it. We love every pole vault. You're watching sports you've never even thought of, and you're like, there's underwater that. I had no idea. Well, let's watch it, man. Sit down. Let's DVR it. You know, like, we, we just totally go nuts over that. Why do we love that? It's because we can admire the excellence of a human person. We can admire the excellence of the discipline that it takes, the, the, the courage that it takes, the perseverance that it takes. We can, even if you don't like this sport, you can admire an athlete. You can understand kind of what happens in that. It's, it's a form of excellence that we love. Now, what has corporations like Nike, what they've done is they've taken advantage of that and our understanding of the excellence, and they've also tied it to marketing, and they've, they've studied the deepest desires of our hearts, and they mark it right to your hearts. OK, so Nike is an amazing corporation. They make great products. They also endorse their athletes very well. In 2016, Nike spent $10 billion just endorsing their athletes, OK? The LeBron James is a lifetime Nike. I mean, just amazing kind of like what the athletes, and they only take the very best of the best, right? So same with Under Armour. If you sponsor by a team like our, a corporation like that, they, they only sponsor the best because you're representing their brand, and brand means money. They've spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours researching you, and they know why you do what we do. Many times they know better why we do what we do than we do. It's why when you watch a Nike or an Under Armour running commercial, and after the commercial, you're like, I need to go running. And you're like, but I hate running, but also me, but I need to go running. Like, what's happening? You, spend, you drop 200 bucks on a pair of running shoes, you wear five times. You know, it's like it's crazy because they know why, what, they know what motivates us. Under Armour has a brand new campaign out. It's a great commercial. I, I don't have it tonight, but it's called The Only Way is Through. So great. The Only Way is Through. And it talks about the, the narrator on the commercial saying, the only way, you're not, you're not just your failures, you're not your successes. You are the fight. You get up and you fight and you keep going another day. There is no other way. The Only Way is Through. I was like, amen, Under Armour. Like, that's very astute. Like, I was going to say that, you know, because that's true. Because there is no other stream. There is no other way through. And in our lives, do we not spend so much of our lives looking for another way around the cross? Like, can I just go around this way? Like, can I just go around? <laughs> can maybe under it? Or over the top or something, you know? But when you see this example of Christ, and can I talk about the female counterpart, the beautiful woman of Mary, in this journey, that the only way is through. And if you've watched The Passion of the Christ, okay, maybe sometimes people watch that every Lent. If you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend you seeing it. One of the most powerful scenes in that entire movie is when Jesus is walking to Calvary, and he's bloody, and he's beaten, and he's, you know, and that's true that the the Romans would strip you, and they would actually, you know, they would scourge you right to the point of death. They were very good at torturing, but they wouldn't give you the luxury of dying, they would leave you right at the brink of death. They would put the beam on your shoulder, and you would have your crime around your neck, and you would march through town. People would spit at you, cuss you out. It was the sh- you talk about the walk of shame, right? And if you survived that, then they would crucify you. They'd strip you naked, totally naked, and crucify you. Not outside, way out in the middle of the country. They crucified you outside the city walls, but on the main highway. So everybody coming into Jerusalem knew, they know who rules here. And fear is a very powerful motivator, isn't it? It's to quell fear. So what's happening in this is that, you know, the Lord is going through the streets of, you know, on the streets on the way to Calvary, and he has this big beam, and he is marred. He's beaten. He's marred beyond even recognition. And what happens is he falls for the third time. And Mary, I love, I love the character. I love the person of Mary, especially portrayed, who she is, but portrayed by Mel Gibson of what he did. That woman is fierce because she doesn't ever shy away one time. She's there with her son the entire time, and she's walking. She can't walk against him, but she's following him along the streets, the side streets, and she's walking with him the entire way. And as he p- crosses through a portico, she sees him trip and fall. And she, in the moment, ladies, you remember this so in a moment she remembers of him falling as a little boy, and she takes off running toward her son. And in her memory, she sees her little boy falling, and in her memory, she runs toward him, and she scoops him up, as a woman does so well. She scoops him up, and she puts him on her heart, and she rocks him back and forth, and she makes it all better. But this time, as she runs toward her son, she can't stop the pain. But she goes right up to him. She's not afraid of the guard. She's not afraid of anything. She goes right up to him, right up to his face that is bloody and marred. She's not afraid. And she reaches out for her son who is in such agony. That is the nobility of a woman. Man, she's beautiful. And Jesus reaches out to her. His face is all bloody. He reaches out to her face, and he gets right up to her face. And Mel Gibson puts the words in his mouth of the book of Revelation. He says, Mother, I make all things new. I make all things new. And it's so profoundly beautiful that the guards even see Mary. They see her and they say, who is that woman? And one of the guards says to the other, that's his mother. And she walks with him and she never cowers. She never weakens. She never turns back. She walks with him all the way because she knows that there is no other way. There is no other way to the resurrection, my dear friends, than through the death and the suffering. And those things must come, but it's not the end of the story. The death and the sorrow and the suffering is not the end. It's not the end. It is all for a purpose, right? So how the Lord comes to encounter us, if you're a Father Jacques Philippe fan, this is a great quote. He says, The only the intimate contact with the heart of Jesus can heal the hardness of the human heart. Only intimate contact with the heart of Jesus can heal the hardness of the human heart. So it's in these very places that we've been talking about these nights and the places that are perhaps coming to your mind right now where we're hard of heart, where we don't want to go through the cross. We want to try to find another stream. We want to try to find another way. It's often those places that are shrouded in shame, the places in our families that have never been spoken. It's these very places where Jesus Christ is not embarrassed and he's not afraid and he comes right to us. It's very beautiful, you know, when you see when the Gospels where Jesus comes upon the man who's possessed in the tombs, and the man is naked, and he can't, there, nobody can restrain him. He's just like crazy, and he's taking rocks and bruising himself. And it's just like, it's such a poetic sorrow of like what we do in our life. We're walking out among the dead. We're like beyond restraint, and we're just taking rocks and bruising ourselves. And Jesus comes right into that. The disciples are probably scared to death, <laughs> And Jesus comes right into, there, into that situation, and he starts talking to the man. And he asks the man, what is your name? And he says, Legion, for there are many. And what happens, you see this the swine herds, you know, and all the pigs in the corner. And the, the demons start begging, like, "Don't, please don't cast us out. Please don't cast us out. Please cast us into the pigs instead. And Jesus acquiesces, and they cast him into the pigs. And the pigs, you know, run over to the bank, and they're drowned into the river. And the swineherds run away to, the, I mean, that's kind of a big deal. The swineherds run away to the town, and they tell the town, everybody, what happened. You know what happens? I find this so fascinating. Because what really mystifies the people is not that there are you know, 2,000 or 200 swine in the river. They run to the cemetery. They see the man who was formerly possessed, formerly out of his mind, formerly self-destructing, sitting in his right mind clothed. That same verb for sitting in his right mind clothed is the same verb used for the angels that sit and announce the resurrection at the Lord. They see that man in his right mind and clothed and that they lose it. They lose their ever-loving minds after that, you know. And they beg the Lord to leave. So where in our lives, where, where in our lives, my dear friends, because the Lord is so kind to us. Where is he coming today? Where is he coming this Lent in your life to heal the hardness of your heart? Because we talk about intimacy, and that means we talk about being home, being seen, like we talked about the first night, being seen, being known, being loved, a place where you and I can rest. And if the heart of Christ is not a place where we can rest, shall we not ask him for that grace? Places where we don't trust the Lord. We have to be very honest. We all have places in our life we don't trust the Lord, where we don't depend on him, where we want to take care of ourselves, where we want to control or dominate or manipulate. And the Lord is asking us to surrender because he makes, he makes all things new. So in your journey, where is that for you? Because when we do this, when we allow this transformation to take place, what happens is more and more in our life, hope is born. And so I want to talk about hope because we have an idea, like we have an idea of forgiveness, we have an idea of hope as well. And I'm going to read this to you. I'm sorry, that's kind of faded out. So when we talk about hope, just the general word of hope, if you look up the word hope, it is what? The confident desire of obtaining a future good that is difficult to obtain. It is therefore a desire which implies seeking and pursuing some future good that is not possessed but wanted. Unlike fear, this is so great, unlike fear that shrinks from a future evil. Okay, so I'm going to stop right there. So hope is a desire. It's an ultimately a virtue. It's a theological virtue, a virtue infused at your baptism. A theological virtue is a virtue ordered toward God himself. It's a confident desire that God is going to fulfill his promises. Hope is not wishful thinking. And doesn't it feel like that at times? Because we use that word like we use the word love. We use it kind of in a scattered way. I hope that it doesn't rain tomorrow. You know, I hope that my spouse, you know, makes it home on time. I hope that the saints go back to the Super Bowl, like whatever that is for you, okay? (laughs) Can I just, okay, I'm a Seahawks girl, but can I just say that I was in the East Coast in in Boston and I had to talk about the Patriots? I could barely choke that out. I just want to say, I'm like, oh, please, I don't want to say, I hope the Patriots don't please no, please don't make me say that, okay? But whatever that is for you. And then we say we hope in God and we wonder, like, hope is not wishful thinking, it's an it's a virtue, it's an act of the will. It is a choice where you and I have a choice to despair or we have a choice to give into the darkness or a choice to give into the lies that Satan is profoundly pouring out upon all of us. We have a decision. And it's just the, even the language that that fear shrinks back. Fear shrinks back. But hope presses forward. And it is a choice you and I can always make. That we might not understand the outcome of something. We might not understand what's happening. But we can choose hope. We can choose that the Lord will bring about what he wishes to bring about. Because in the economy of salvation, nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. So, in the middle, it says, Hope is confident that what is desired will certainly be attained. It is the opposite of despair. So it requires an openness of heart. Isn't it so interesting how in our life, isn't it so interesting, that hope can feel so vulnerable? Have we not had situations in our life that seem continually disappointing? And then the Lord's asking us to hope there. I'm like, are you serious? Like, I don't want to hope here. I've quote unquote hoped before and that hasn't worked out too well. So what we do in our journey, it's very interesting to try to self-protect. We build this wall and it's like this wall of kind of guardedness. It's a wall of criticism. It's a wall of cynicism where we don't want to hope for anything more because to hope is to be vulnerable. It's is one of the beautiful things that you see before children, you know, long before children have been wounded and damaged and traumatized. Do you know what their little hearts hope? <laughs> like everything is the best thing ever for a kid. Everything is like the best thing ever. And do we not admire that? Do we not love that about them? Their openness of heart. They're quick to cry. They're quick to laugh. They're quick to see the beautiful things. You know, one of the neatest things is when you have little kids and when you light up the Christmas tree for the first time, <laughs> are they not just in awe of the beauty like, this is part of our hearts that we, we admire in that because, and Jesus says, you know, blessed are the child, like, because their hearts are open. Do you have parts of your heart where you've stopped hoping because it just seems too painful? Because those are parts of our hearts where we have turned in on ourselves and it starts to calcify, right? And we wonder, can the Lord even bring resurrection here? And He's saying to you tonight, I can bring resurrection even there, even there. So there's nothing beyond the mercy of God. Like we talked about as well, hope is a virtue, that heaven is our home, this is a catechism, that heaven is our home, that God will fulfill his promises, and it responds to the aspiration of happiness which God has placed in the heart of every man. Every single one of us wants to be happy, St. Augustine in his confessions, every single one of us wants to be happy, and this is why we do what we do. And many times the happiness that we're seeking is illusory and we kind of go down a different path. But in our hearts we want to be happy. Like we said in the very first night, we are made for communion and relationship. And this is why the best moments of our life have to do with communion and relationship and why the deepest brokenness of our life usually has to do with isolation or death or despair or brokenness. It's written here. It is written here. And so, what the Lord does. What he comes to us, especially in this Lenten season, is he's drawing us. We're not going out into the desert on our own. Thank God. <laughs> He's leading you out into the desert, and his desire is to make all things new, all things new, so that we, like we've said before, we are not the same person on Easter Sunday that we were on Ash Wednesday, that we are made new, and then we continue to walk in this way. This is the way the Lord desires to transform us, okay? So like we said, we talked about the only way is through, okay, so how and what manner should we continue, and this is the continuation of John Paul's quote from the Redeemer of Man. He says, to this question of how we should continue, to this question, a fundamental and essential response must be given. Our response must be our spirit is set in one direction. The only direction for our intellect, will, and heart is towards Christ our Redeemer, toward Christ the Redeemer of Man. So what he's saying here, no uncertain terms, is there is no other way, there is no stream, and the only, the only way is through. The only way is through. So where is the Lord calling you today, in this season, to take one more step forward? Because his mercy is quite surprising. And I've shared with you a bit of my story over the last couple of nights. But one of the things that I, I that I sometimes share with audiences is, as I as I told you, I had a very troubled life for a long time and a recovering addict and things like that. My mother. One of the reasons I'm a sister today, a religious sister today, is because of the intercession of a very wonderful and holy priest. And it is to this day why the priesthood is the deepest love of my life. I love the Catholic priesthood. I believe in the the yes of one man that changes the course of the lives of so many. The other reason why my sister day is because of my mother, my chainsaw-bearing mother. Okay, so you can imagine that, right? And my mother, God bless her, like we said, she and I did not get along for a long time. And my mother had finally, when I got to college and I was doing what I wanted to do, you talk about the hardness of heart and the, the inability to resurrect or not even wanting to resurrect. My mother had just finally like went head to head with me and I was making a decision in my life my mother didn't want me to make. And I'm in college, I'm in Nevada, in Reno, Nevada, and she's out in the Portland, Oregon area, and she's calling me on the phone, just seeing what I'm doing, and I'm like, stop, just stop it, like, stop, just leave me alone, stop it. And she says, if you do not do something different, if you don't make a different choice, we will financially cut you off. And I said, okay, you go right ahead, you know, go ahead. And I was quite poor for quite some time, okay, because she meant it, so she financially cut me off. And then my mom said, she upped the ante, mom's like, if you stop, if you don't stop doing that, if you don't make a different choice... Your dad and I, oh my, God bless my mom. My mom said, we're going to disown you. We will disown you. You will not be welcome at our house. You will not be welcome at any family function. If you do not make a different decision about this, we will disown you. Now, I'm not recommending any parent do that, right? But I said to her, can I think about that and get back to you? Let me, <laughs> let me think about that, right? But my dad, my sweet father, like I said, had said Nothing. He did not want to get into this battle between his wife and his daughter. He just didn't want to, and I, w- I wish he would have, but he just didn't know how. So he just said nothing. And one weekend, my parents came down to Nevada, where I was going to school, my parents came out of school. and it was the first time, I think, that my dad finally saw with his own eyes the dysfunction of the life that I was living. And my dad didn't say anything to me about it, but my parents went home. And I thought that that's where the story ended. But it wasn't until after my dad passed away, as soon as the mass was over, as soon as the mass was over, as soon as the priest had walked out, my mom said, I want to talk to you, sit down. And my mom sat me down, I thought she was going to tell me that she was sick like my dad. She was very serious. She's like, you sit down. She's like, I want to tell you a story. She's like, remember that weekend when your dad and I came to visit you in college? And I was like, yeah, it was so awful, I couldn't forget it. She's like, let me tell you the rest of that story. She's like, your dad and I went home after that weekend, and your dad looked at me, And your dad said to me, I just can't stand it anymore. I can't stand the life that my daughter is living. I can't support it, and I won't support it anymore. And I don't know what to do. I just can't do this. And my mom knew for my sweet southern father to finally say something that she knew how heartbroken he was. And my mom had already financially cut me off. She threatened to disown me, and I was like, don't tell me what to do. And I was made in a massive dysfunction, like living with pretty much a second guy, active alcohol. I mean, my life was a train wreck, train wreck. And I was like, don't tell me what to do. I don't have a problem. So that night, my mom got out of bed after talking to my dad. And my mom did the last thing that she could possibly think of. And in the basement of our house, uh, we have a beautiful statue of Our Lady. And that night, my mom got on her knees before her. And she gave me away to Our Lady. And she said mother this is your daughter now like I, I don't know what to do with her she's out of control I can't help her I can't cure her I can't heal her I, I don't know what to do with her and I I on this night I give you my daughter and I ask that you would be her mother I pray that you would watch over her that you would guard her and guide her I give her totally to you I surrender her to you that night I'm almost on her knees and that night she begins to pray and fast for me okay I am 800 miles away in college, like I said, living a really, really broken and dysfunctional life, having no idea what's going on. That night, my mom began to fast and pray that I would become a nun, right? So, the moral of the story is, (laughs) watch out for the prayers of moms, really, that's really the moral of the story, you know? But do we not, my mom, and my mom has other things, and I, you know, there are many times in life when my mom has gone head, I've gone head to head with my mom and my, my brother over certain things, and my mom has issues to deal with with her own story, but my mom stopped me one time, and she said, you will never know. My mom was like, you will never know what it's like to have children and to raise them and give them the best of everything, give them the best food, the best education, the best music lessons, the best thing you could possibly do, and then watch them become adults and walk away from it all. And she looked at me, she's like, I will never, I will never give up on you. I will never give up on your brother, and I will never stop fasting and praying for both of you until I see you face-to-face in heaven one day. That is a heart of love for you and I. So my dear friends, there is nothing in our journeys that is beyond the mercy of God. He is so wonderfully surprising, even if we don't see it the way we want to see it this side of heaven, okay? So with that in point, if we could just talk about, our, talk about Lent, okay? And talk about, like we said, the disciplines of Lent. And we're a week into Lent. That is Wednesday. So we are officially week one into Lent. I'm giving you full permission to change everything you already started, okay? <laughs> because I, wanna in, I just want to invite you to think about something. Because when we talk about prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, it's order toward healing. Okay, so we're not doing things just to do them. And we're not doing things just to, you know, kind of avoid stuff. Because like we said, prayer heals our relationship with God. It heals our relationship with God because we're at face-to-face in intimacy with him. Did you know that every single time you pray, you come in contact with the Lord? Did you know every single time you even go into the chapel, because I love being, it's one of the million reasons why I love being Catholic. Every time you go into the chapel where the blessed sacrament is, even if it's not exposed in the tabernacle, every time you go into the chapel, the presence of Christ is so powerful, the emanation of his presence literally heals your soul. Like, you can't go out into the sunshine without having your skin changed. You cannot be in the presence of the sun without having your soul changed. Just going and sitting there and just like, quote, unquote, wasting time with the Lord is a transformative thing. So our prayer isn't just, I'm going to say more prayers this Lent, okay? Can I just offer that to you? But what is the quality of prayer? What is happening in your prayer? Like, where does your mind go? What is, because we've all had friends, you know, you've got friends, have you ever had lunch with a friend, they're texting the whole time, and you're like, hello, 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 and they're like, yeah, I'm listening, you're not listening, you're not listening to what I'm saying, you have no idea what I'm saying, you know? Sometimes we're just totally distracted in prayer, we just continue, we continue to show up, so that our prayer isn't just rote ideas, or just more words, but the quality How is your prayer this Lent leading you toward a healing of your relationship with God? Maybe areas you don't trust Him. Or maybe disappointments in life. Or maybe areas of our life where our hearts are hard, where the Lord wishes to come and knock on the door of our heart like He talks about in Revelation, but we just don't want to open the door. Okay, We talk about fasting that heals our relationship within ourselves because we are fractured within ourselves. So fasting, that daily denial, the discipline, the the root word of discipline, D-I-S-C, is also the same root as the word disciple. That root word means Student it means learner. So it means we're a student, we're on the way. So we were always, as disciples of the Lord, we're always students of the Lord, we're always learning, which is a beautiful thing. So the discipline, when we deny ourselves or take on something else, like, you know, if you decided to eat peas for 40 days or whatever that is for you, okay, it actually heals ourselves because many times in our journey, we all have areas of our life we have a hard time saying no. And there's a great saying that says this, if you can't say no, what does your yes mean? So many times in life, you're like, I'm not going to eat bread for Lent. I'm going to eat bread for Lent. And then all of a sudden, you're at a restaurant, and the bread table, like the bread basket comes out, and you ate like the whole loaf. You're like, what happened? I have no idea what's happening, you know? Or have you ever just stood in front of the pantry and with like a, like a bag of potato chips? And you're just looking at the pantry, and you're eating potato chips. You're just like scratching your belly, you know? And then you go into the fridge. You open the fridge. Still the same bag of potato chips. And you're opening the fridge. Like when you eat the whole bag, like what's happening? Like we don't even know what's happening, you know? We have no idea and food is a powerful re- have you ever eaten out of boredom have you ever eaten because you're sad you know it's amazing our relationship with food oh you know that too <laughs> like you know it's isn't that interesting so to be very attentive my dear friends this is us being very attentive to what's happening and when we are hungry so to speak or when there is something that you have given up for lent which is a, what it signifies is it signifies something deeper so when you are hungry It reminds you of the hunger that is the hunger for Christ. It's the hunger for the stream. It's the hunger for him. It should be hard. (laughs) It should be difficult. It should challenge us at least in some way so when the hunger comes to the surface, it reminds us of what? Like we said before, Lord, why am I doing what I'm doing? What's happening here? And one of the best ways to offer fasting or anything that we've taken on for Lent is to offer it for somebody else. Because many times you won't do something for yourself. Like you'll eat the whole loaf of bread if it's just you, okay? but if you're thinking about your neighbor whose marriage is about to implode, could you not offer that up for them? You know, And it's amazing how we said, like, grace, there's no such thing as a private sin, there's no such thing as a private virtue either, that you and I help each other so in your fasting, kind of what, what's happening? Just so we're very attentive. Like, what's happening? What is that leading you toward? And lastly, in the area of almsgiving, almsgiving heals our relationships with other people. Not only is it giving monetarily, which is really important, but also, you know, what the best, you know one of the best things you can give to somebody as an alms is the gift of your presence and your time. To be totally present, which means you put the cell phone away and you just sit before them and you just listen and receive. That sounds so simple. That is so shockingly rare. That is so shockingly rare. And do we not in our journey, do you not, if you ask yourself this, do you not just want to sit with somebody at times who just receives you? And yes, and is a reciprocity of a friendship, of a conversation, but somebody who is completely attentive to you? We all deeply desire that, and it's such a, it's such a precious commodity, and it's just absolutely so rare because most of the time we're distracted. So in your alms, how are you giving to others? Are you giving out of your excess? Are you giving out of your need? Are you giving just just to be very, just, just things for you to think about, right, on this journey of kind of like, what's happening? And is it ordering me toward healing with others? Because if the giving of alms is making me cranky or something, I might want to take a look at that, <laughs> kind of see what's happening there, what's happening in our hearts, and why is that happening? So the discipline, what it does is it helps transform us, okay? Can I give you just a couple tools for your toolbox? And I have a little video I want to show you. Um, The number one book I recommend across the country, people ask me all the time, like, what's a book on healing that that I would recommend? The number one book I recommend across the nation on healing is a book that you see there called Be Healed by Dr. Bob Schutz. Dr. Bob Schutz has been a mentor for me for many years. He was a marriage and family therapist for over 40 years, and he's an ardent Catholic, one of the holiest people I know. And that book is about a journey of healing, about his own family, but about just being with clients. But he sketches out the nature of the soul, the wounds, like we talked about last night, the lies we believe, how those things are implanted. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. I would highly, highly, highly recommend it. He's the founder of a ministry called the John Paul II Healing Center. They're going to be here in your diocese in December, right? They're going to put on a retreat called Healing the Whole Person. I think it's the second weekend of December. And if you, once you get word of that, you can go to their website. Their website is JP2, like J-P-I-I healingcenter.org. I I would highly recommend signing up. Because it takes what we did this week, what what we did, and it reframes it it in a different way. And it talks about the heart, about communion, about relationship, about brokenness, how it works, and the restoration of the human person. I would highly, highly, highly recommend it. Um, A couple of other things For this Lenten journey, I would highly recommend, obviously, a life of prayer. Like, our lives as Christians has got to rest on a foundation of prayer. So that means we have to make time for it. It's not like, it's not a thing, well, I'll do it when I get around to it. We must. We must make time for it. Because you know what people want? You know what people want from professed Christians, professed believers? It's something that I realized a long time ago when I started speaking. I've been speaking for over 10 years now. It's something that I learned right away, and I hope I never forget it. At the end of the day, people do not want to meet me. Thank God. <laughs> they don't. They want to meet Christ. They want to have an encounter with the living God. And they have a right to come to me and find Christ in me. And that's what prayer does. People want to look at us and they want to say, you're a professed Catholic, or professed Christian, do you live any differently than anybody else? They want to see that because they want to see the hope. They want to see what has the Lord done for you? What is the Lord doing for you? Even in your life when it's messy, because nobody's life is perfect, but what is the Lord doing for you? And your witness, my dear friends, you're a witness of being faithful day in and day out, and when you fall, you get back up, you go to confession, you, you, know, you, you, you community outreach. This is so powerful because it's so antithetical to the world that says, get what you can get while you can get it, and to heck with everybody else. Christianity is a completely different way of life. And it is life that has stood generation after generation after generation after generation, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. That is an offensive, not a defensive position. That's what Christ comes to establish in us. So you and I, our lives, a life of prayer, having that be the foundation of our lives, receiving the sacraments, community gathering, whether that's a Bible study, a prayer group, something that you're doing in community, Christianity is not meant to be lived in isolation. It's a fellowship. And investing in your parish. And can I just say, I speak. like I said, I speak to a lot of parishes and a lot of people across the nation. Y'all have something amazing here at Wisdom. Can I just say that? It is absolutely beautiful. And just the the young people, everybody that's coming and all the life that's coming from it. When you invest monetarily, when you invest your time in places like this, beautiful things grow. And it's so edifying to me. I can tell. I can tell when I walk in as a speaker the openness of your heart. And you are Amazing. And I can tell all the work that's been done here. And I just want to encourage you to continue to invest here at Wisdom and what's happening, the beautiful things that are happening, because it's profoundly affecting people. Because I hear stories all the time of what happened in their college parish, what happened with focused missionaries, that they changed their life, what happened with the life of the daily witness of people that came that ministered to them. It makes such a difference. Such a difference. So where, right, as in this journey where we are right now, okay, so we're kind of like back where we started, Right now as you sit here tonight, okay, and what the Lord is saying to you, I'm always about the one thing. So what is the next right step for you? What is the next thing for you? Not as your life as you wish it was, or if it was this, then this would be this, but as it is now. That we're embracing our life as it is now, and how how will we respond now, okay? So I just want to show you a little commercial by a group of people that they sit these adults down and they ask the adults one question. And I think you might find, you'll be able to answer this question very easily, but it's just an interesting kind of take on the human person and kind of where we often find ourselves. So here you go. Hello? We want to ask you one question. If you can be any age, what age would you be? Um, that's a curveball. That's a pretty good question. Um, hmm, I think 17 20 16 Well, when I'm older, I get to have a sweet 16 party. I want to work on a computer. You finally can drive. And you get to go to every party you want to visit. Who doesn't want to be older when you're, you know, 12 after you get over 18, after you get over 21, you stop wishing you were older and start wishing you were perhaps a bit younger. I would like to be 15 again. 16? <laughs> Where your mom my mom cooked for me every night. Puberty was fun. I went through the girls and the pimples and dates. And not having a shave was great. You're just kind of finding yourself, but you didn't have to live in the real world by yourself yet. You're seven years old because like you don't have anything to worry about. Worst thing that happens is you have like blisters on your hands. The body isn't quite as resilient uh, when you're 44 as it is when you're 24. As of right now, obviously there's still some things that I wish I could have redone better or done differently. So, you know, just wanted to, I wouldn't mind going back to two. Let's just start it all over again, see see what I can do with it. We've been asking everyone the same question. Okay. If you can be any age, what age would you be? You know, that's, that's a difficult question, only because I was in a hurry to get through life. Consequently, many of those uh, years are a blur. We don't want to go through life having regrets. And uh, at least for me, um, you know, my regrets uh, were a result of not being in the moment. Do you like being your age? I love being (laughs) eighty, Even though maybe considered the autumn of our years, just think how beautiful autumn is. I like to be five because I just started school. I like the freedom that I have now. I have a lot more freedom than I did before. I've grown a lot. I feel like I'm not dependent on like people for physical things. Still so have like so many years to really figure yourself out. There's an authority that comes to saying you're 25 without sounding too old. You can take chances when you're a little bit more established in life than you can when you're you know, in your 20s and even into your 30s. One thing I've learned about life itself. Take it in. You're really not missing out on anything. Embrace everything that you can about your life as it is today. great question right for later discussion of what age would you be but also what's the best thing about your life today what is the best thing what is god doing in your life today what is the resurrection in your life today and where is he leading you Um, i'm going to give the last word to pope benedict Uh, he says this this is from his very first homily as the holy father he says are we not perhaps all afraid in some way that if we let christ enter fully into our lives if we open ourselves totally to him are we not afraid that he might take something away from us If we let Christ into our lives, we lose nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing of what makes life free and beautiful and great. And it is only in this friendship is the great potential of human existence truly revealed. So I bet that this last three days have been like drinking out of a fire hydrant (laughs) for many of you, right? And there's a lot. But the really beautiful thing about how this mission is going to end tonight is actually we're going to have adoration in the chapel. So this is a time for you if you want to to go sit before the Lord to take everything that has happened these last few days and you go sit before the Lord and let him speak to you about it let him speak into your heart let him speak into your journey let him speak into your Lenten your Lenten adventure with him where he loves you right so there there is no other stream my dear friends and amen to that right and amen to that so let's pray huh Jesus, I thank you profoundly for this time. We thank you for all the graces that you've brought us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all the ways that you've spoken deeply to us. We are profoundly grateful for how you love us. Jesus, I thank you for every single person that's come these last few nights, and I pray that you would bless them, Lord. I pray that you would speak deeply to them. I pray that you would give them courage and hope and healing on this Lenten journey. I pray that they would follow you wherever you want to go, Lord. They would follow you and they would walk with you, even into the depths of the suffering, so that you can rise, you can raise them from the dead. I just pray for an outpouring of joy and a peace upon you and a blessing upon all of you. Jesus, we thank you for how you love us. We thank you for your love that never ends. And we thank you that you make all things new. And we seal this time of grace together as we pray. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our Lady of Victory, pray for us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It's been a distinct honor to be here with you, so God bless you. Thank you very much.